0: this is fresh ed a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood I'm your host will Brem the covid 19 pandemic has created an emergency situation for most education systems worldwide schools are closed students are at home stress and anxiety are high domestic violence and food insecurity are on the rise and we are uncertain when this emergency will end luckily, There is a large body of research on education in emergencies that can help guide us through this unprecedented situation. My guest today is Sarah Dryden-Peterson, a foremost scholar on education in conflict and post-conflict settings. She offers us many valuable tips.
1: When disruption happens, when people experience uncertainty, this idea of having a long-term purpose can be even more important than it is in a kind of stable context. And so I think this is an important way that teachers and families can really think about the kind of learning that we do now, not as a stopgap measure until things return to normal, but instead that the future of learning and the future of many parts of our lives may look different. And so as parents and teachers, we can help our young people to have the kind of predictability and stability of love and care and routines, but also help them gain the skills to navigate this kind of uncertainty with that foundation of trust and knowing that we will help them and work together to build futures that they can still be hopeful about.
0: Sarah Dryden-Peterson is an associate professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. She is the co-founder and director of REACH, a collaborative initiative provides guidance and resources on key topics in education, migration, and displacement for educators, policymakers, and researchers. She has recently started Books of Belonging, an online video series where she reads a picture book each day of the week. Sarah Dryden-Peterson, welcome back to Fresh Ed.
1: Thanks, Will. It's great to rejoin you.
0: So was there a moment for you when you realized that your specialty in education and emergencies was going to be vital for this pandemic?
1: That, that's a great question. I've actually reflected on that a fair bit. I really remember the last day that I picked our kids up from school on what in the end would end up being their last days together with their teachers and friends of this school year. Where we live in Boston, it wasn't clear yet that schools would be closing. Um, But I realized when I was picking them up on that day that I was looking around differently, kind of the way you do in moments that you want to remember or that you feel might be different, taking in every detail, trying to grab on to the kind of togetherness of the learning communities.
0: Huh. So was there some details that you specifically remember?
1: Um, I remember um, looking in the mirror. I was picking the kids up in the car and seeing our daughter, um, our older daughter, walk towards me carrying all of her books and um, kind of saying goodbye to her friends and and wondering whether there would be a time when they would be back together this school year.
0: Yeah, it's really it's quite amazing. I mean, just the level of uncertainty that has sort of become so normal for so many people at so many different levels because schools as you said, have closed now. And obviously, I guess some policymakers are currently trying to think about opening them up again, which in some cases seems a bit strange, but it is a conversation that's being had. And so I'm wondering, you know, in in other cases of conflict that you've studied and looked at, you know, why did schools close? I mean, this time it's obviously a pandemic, but what has happened in other cases?
1: Mm -hmm. So I think I mean, this is obviously one of the hardest decisions that educators and education systems can make to close schools. Um, in really thinking about the right to education, the continuity of learning, all of the goals that schools represent for kids, teachers, families, and communities. And really, the decision to close schools gets made when the harm caused by keeping schools open is greater than or has the potential to be greater than the benefits that kids are gaining from being at school. So in conflict settings, we see the kinds of harms that schools can cause in often very visible ways. So when schools are the target of bombing, when schools are occupied by armed forces, when children are experiencing violence on their roots and walking to school. Um, And children and families and teachers see this kind of harm in a very visible way. I think what's been different with this pandemic is that children experience their schools closing often in the absence of any kind of threat that they could see, this invisible um, kind of illness, schools closed in a preventative way. And so it was often unclear to them what harms were being addressed by closing of schools.
0: Yeah, it seems like the closure, it was the idea, it was in the mind, right? We had to imagine this threat without, at the time, maybe even knowing anyone that had the virus or having very few stories of the virus in the communities in which we live.
1: Right, exactly. And I think for those who live in places where school closures are a rare occurrence, and in fact, something that many students and parents have never experienced in their lifetime. It was really a kind of unimaginable situation that schools would be closed, and particularly that schools would be closed for an extended length of time.
0: So in previous conflict settings that you've examined, how long are schools typically closed for? I mean, this is a big question that so many people seem to be wondering. Is it going to be a few weeks? Is it going to be you know, months? Are we talking a whole school year? Everyone seems very worried. And it honestly, it's very difficult to get much answer out of, you know, governments in the U.S., in the U.K., where I currently live. I know Japan has had some difficulty getting some clarity on, on how long schools are actually going to be closed for. So, you know, based on the research in other conflict settings, what do we know?
1: I think this is one of the things that's become particularly apparent to me, having worked in education in crisis and conflict, is that I was beginning to see patterns in what we might expect for school closures, both the fact that they would close and then this idea of the duration. Um, So even at a very personal level, I started asking our older daughter to bring all her school materials home from school in advance of school's closing because it seemed like it was very clearly on the horizon that that might happen with the inability to go and retrieve those materials. And this idea that when schools close, they're often closed for a lot longer than we ever imagined that they might be. So the kinds of disruptions to schools that I have experienced, having grown up in Canada and lived in the eastern US for a long time, are really weather related. And so they're short lived, you can imagine when they're going to finish, and don't need to engage in the kind of preparedness that we see, have seen the need for here. Mm-hmm. And I think, like in conflict settings, most people imagine that the disruptions that they're going to experience are going to be short-lived. Um, and so we, we talk with refugee families who, when they flee their homes, imagine that they're going to be returning um, within a few weeks or a few months, and then realize that the experience of displacement and the kind of conflicts that cause those displacements are quite longstanding. And the average conflict now lasts between 10 and 25 years. Of course, that doesn't mean that schools are closed um, for all of that time. But I think the main point is that while we think school disruptions will be short-lived, they're almost always longer than we anticipate.
0: It just seems so traumatic that the idea of anticipating going back to something in a few weeks and then inevitably learning that it's actually going to be much, much longer and perhaps an uncertain amount of time in the future. I mean, the, the sort of traumatic experience that must have caused people and I think is causing people today is, um, is just so difficult, I think, to, to begin to grasp. And, I, you know, maybe we're going through some sort of collective trauma right now.
1: I think that's right. And I think it is this kind of unpredictability that you're talking about or uncertainty that's so hard to wrap our heads around. And we certainly see this in conflict settings too, that it's the unpredictability of knowing if or when schools will be closed, or if or when schools might reopen, um, that is so hard to then put the pieces of everybody's life back together around. And in conflict settings, we see this kind of unpredictability of violence. So schools and children and families living with this uncertainty of not knowing if their schools would become a target, and so not being able to have all the information that would be necessary to make these kinds of decisions. And of course, while conflict settings and pandemics are different in very tangible ways, I think this unpredictability is what we see as constant across. So like there's so um, so much that we don't understand about COVID-19 in terms of predicting um, what the harm might be of gathering children in places like schools and whether the benefits might outweigh those harms. We see this kind of uncertainty and predictability in conflict settings as well. Mm.
0: And obviously that very particular issue would make planning for education, you know, as a system, at the system level, almost impossible. Like if you don't know a lot of the sort of basic questions around the virus itself, it's very hard to sort of plan the institutions of a society. And yet we have a lot of institutions, global institutions, like the Global Education Coalition and Education International, the the Global Federation of Teacher Unions, they are beginning to put out guidance for reopening schools so they're trying to begin planning even or in spite of the uncertainty in which we live I'm not sure if you've read um, these school guidance reopening re- guidance that that these different groups have put out but you know what do you make of it what you know on your general read what what's good what's bad how do they compare you know how do you make sense of these reopening plans
1: I think what's really productive about the guidelines that we've see come forward so far is that they are very explicit about the incomplete information that we have and the uncertainty with which school systems are working. And so this idea that instead of rejecting the idea of uncertainty and making certain plans because it's easier to do so, of really framing guidelines around needing to work with uncertainty and what some of the ways in which we can productively address that uncertainty. So as I read these guidelines, I see this really clear focus on um, making decisions that are contextualized and that are able to go through processes of continued adaptation depending on what the circumstances are. I also see a real focus on thinking through equity concerns, no matter what the scenarios are. And both of these sets of guidelines that you mentioned, I think are also filled with the kinds of questions that we need to be asking ourselves. And even rhetorically, I think this is a really interesting strategy because when we are in situations of uncertainty, one of the most important things we can do is ask questions. We don't need to pretend that we have all the answers. And in fact, by figuring out what the right questions to ask, We can make movement on how we collectively can answer those kinds of questions.
0: What kind of questions would these be?
1: I mean, I think they are questions about what kind of knowledge do we have and how can that information help us to answer this question of whether there are tremendous health risks to gathering children in places like schools. Mm -hmm. Um, And those questions are very contextual, and they may vary not only from country to country, but from school district to school district and even from school to school. Um, And so thinking about questions related to how we share knowledge. um, How we're transparent about the kind of public discussion that happens related to the factors that um, are being considered um, when schools are opening or not. Um, I think also these questions around um, what are the equity implications of any kinds of decisions? Are decisions either to close or to reopen schools differentially? impacting students in different communities. Both of the sets of guidelines make reference to very particular health and hygiene kind of requirements that would need to be in place. Um, And yet, of course, there are millions of children globally who don't have access to running water in schools. And so as we think about whether or not it is safe to reopen schools, we have to think about these very important health considerations and what's possible in each different context.
0: Hmm. Yeah, big, big questions. And obviously, contextually specific. What about when, when we talk to children themselves? How should we be talking to children about this pandemic? And, you know, are are there lessons from other conflict settings that we can sort of think through to help guide us when we do talk to children, particularly younger children, about you know this very unusual moment we're
1: all living through i think there are in refugee settings we find that children who learn about the histories of conflict and the causes of conflict and why they've need to flee their homes are really able to better cope with the uncertainty that we've just talked about to be able to learn and importantly to be able to think about the role of their education in their future And really, as they are trying to understand why they needed to flee their homes, the origins of the discrimination they face as they're trying to build new lives, children feel better able to learn because they have a solid grasp of what's going on around them. I think this also comes back to children understanding why schools are closed. So this idea that they need to understand, even in the absence of being able to see what's going on um, very tangibly. The science of COVID-19, the reasons for social distancing, including school closures, and the kind of action that they are taking by learning remotely and their agency really in preventing the spread of this disease. And I also think coming back to the kinds of um, questions that the guidelines are asking us to consider in terms of reopening, it's important that young children, but all young people really understand the social and political responses to the pandemic. So I think, of course, we're relying on epidemiologists to help us understand how to track and predict infection. But the kinds of decisions that we'll need to make about schools opening will have to involve careful thinking about how to manage health risks in the context of other kinds of learning goals and goals of being together. So this pandemic really provides an important opportunity for families and teachers to help children think through the kinds of factors that go into these decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think in particular, this is critical because the pandemic has exposed such longstanding structural inequalities, um, including devastatingly unequal effects of who the illness, um, of of who COVID-19 is affecting. So it's really an opportunity for children and young people to grapple with how the policies and practices that we adopt affect people differently. And then what the ethical questions are of what we owe to each other and what kinds of actions we therefore take as a result.
0: What about some more, you know, emotional and mental stresses that children, youth must be facing through this? You know, I mean, it's I, I agree that talking to children about, um, you know, the, the inequalities that exist and, you know, how, how to think through this pandemic and rethink our social institutions. But what, you know, students, children must be feeling so many emotions that are probably difficult to understand. So, you know, how can we begin to talk to children about and help them process those emotions?
1: Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's so hard that schools are closed, mm. because schools play such an important role in the social and emotional development of children the idea of being together and being able to come up with ideas and support each other, the role that teachers play in talking through hard feelings. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, so much of this also goes on in families and the ways in which we can really prioritize how we think about the stability that we try to create for children, the kinds of routines, the ways in which we can constantly show children that despite the uncertainty around them, Um, help them think about what in their life is predictable and how that kind of predictability can help them actually form a foundation to engage with the uncertainty in ways that feel productive. Hmm. And I think one of the real ways that we have seen in conflict settings to help children and young people really think about um, present uncertainty and cope with that present uncertainty is to link it to the future. So in some ways, this seems kind of counterintuitive because we think, okay, we've got to focus on the now and the immediate kind of crisis. But when we ask refugee children and families about the purposes of education, they always have one clear answer, and that is about education really helping to make a future. So when disruption happens, when people experience uncertainty, this idea of having a long-term purpose can be even more important than it is in a kind of stable context. And so I think this is an important way that teachers and families can really think about the kind of learning that we do now, not as a stopgap measure until things return to normal, but instead that the future of learning and the future of many parts of our lives may look different. And so as parents and teachers, we can help our young people to have the kind of predictability and stability of love and care and routines, but also help them gain the skills to navigate this kind of uncertainty Mm. with that foundation of trust and knowing that we will help them and work together to build futures that they can still be hopeful about
0: and participate in creating right they would they would sort of it would be co-produced rather than by the adults
1: <laughs> exactly and that they have a critical role in building what these futures will look like
0: yeah right i mean it's such a nice way to, you know, get beyond this moment. Because, you know, some even personally, sometimes I feel on the one hand so focused on the immediate and then at the same time I think about the past and then I think about two weeks from now and what the infection rate will be. And, you know, so in a sense, time is all out of joint in a way. And beginning to think about that future somehow feels right, I guess. It's hard, but it does feel right and something we should be doing now, even though, I know it's pretty difficult. So the other issue here is that, you know, the children today are are at home with their parents or maybe extended family or wherever they live, but certainly not with their teachers. Their teachers are also locked up at home and maybe with their own families. So during this pandemic, during this crisis, during this moment of conflict that so many of us are experiencing now, you know, what role do teachers play in the process of education and online learning and, you know as parents are trying to navigate the emotions of their children, the learning of their children, you know, what role do the teachers play today?
1: I mean, teachers are obviously a a cornerstone to this kind of hopeful future and co-constructing and helping young people um, to build those futures. And it's also true, just like you said, Will, that we're all grieving this inability to be together in classrooms and to be together in schoolyards. And of course, the millions of teachers globally who are teaching from home are also missing these kind of connections that make teaching the kind of joy that it really is. And yet I think what is so hopeful to me in this is that we see teachers reaching their students in all kinds of new and innovative ways. One of the um, projects that we've been engaged with with our REACH initiative which is to really look at how students and teachers are creating new ways of learning together during this pandemic.
0: And what do you find?
1: So some of the work that we have engaged in to look at for example, what teachers of Syrian refugees are doing in Lebanon, um, seeing short videos that teachers are creating with everyday kind of lessons, but also thought-provoking questions that students can think about. Um, Or a team of teachers in South Africa showing how teachers are creating ways to check in individually with their students over WhatsApp, where they can actually um, be able to see if students are having a hard time engaging, and then figuring out what they need, not only in terms of their learning, but also if they might be struggling with food or with security of shelter and and economics at home. And I think that while in times of crisis, we're tempted to think about short-term initiatives, we're also tempted to think about really standardized approaches to education. And I think this kind of widely accessible approach to education um, is really important in terms of providing a foundation of reaching all children. And during, I think, the most comparable kind of example, when we think about the Ebola crisis in West Africa in 2014, teachers were really able to reach their learners via radio because everyone was incredibly isolated in their homes um, like now. And over the past several months, we've seen these kind of standardized, centralized approaches across China with television, education. But as we've been documenting in Ethiopia and is clearly true in other places, these kind of distance learning strategies can also fail to reach the most marginalized students, especially those in rural areas and those who have no electricity. And so I think that what we see is that this pandemic provides us an opportunity to give teachers um, more time and more autonomy to play really the most important roles that they play. They know their students. They know how to engage their students in dialogue, to continue building relationships, and to adapt the teaching that they're doing to the specific needs of their students. And in conflict settings, we see teachers engaged in these processes from a distance as well that are really focused on relationships and on very local level endeavors that teachers and communities are initiating. So, for example, um, teachers dropping off materials to the homes of Palestinian children who are trapped in those homes during the Second Intifada, or Somali teachers who've moved away from the refugee camps where they used to teach, but who have ongoing relationships with their secondary school-age students over Facebook to encourage them, to help them learn particularly challenging materials. And I think what this really points to is that In a time of uncertainty like the one that we're in now, education is at its most effective when it does focus on these relationships of belonging to make sure that all children and young people feel connected, that they feel secure in their relationships and this sense of purpose, feeling a shared sense that they together can help build for the future. And teachers are essential to that kind of work.
0: And they can differentiate among their entire class, you know, depending on what the different socioeconomic statuses are of the students, what their living conditions are. They would be the teachers would be the best place to understand all those differences.
1: That's right. While everyone is isolated um, in their homes, teachers are, in fact... um the most mobile into all of our homes in that way, given the existing relationships that they have with students. And of course, that mm. mobility is not the kind of door to door mobility that we might imagine, but it is a kind of virtual mobility um, through phone calls, through text messages, through online platforms um, and through notes left on doorsteps um, that make a huge difference.
0: Exactly. Sometimes it is physical mobility, but just no it's still physical distancing. Right. It's it's dropping things off in paper to students who don't have the Internet or a printer or whatever it is, Um, you know, or doing or doing it electronically and doing, you know, I've seen in Nigeria teachers doing whole courses on Instagram and sort of doing it live so students can can access it from their homes. So, you know, there's all sorts of ingenious ways, it seems, that teachers are discovering ways of delivery. That are differentiated and maybe not standard.
1: Mm -hmm. And certainly we see this in refugee settings too, not only with teaching, but also with teacher professional development, that using the platforms Hmm. that students and teachers and families are already comfortable with holds the best chance for reaching the most people. Um, And sometimes those platforms are not the same. Teachers are familiar with one set of platforms and students and families with another, but finding a kind of common ground um, to invent new ways of doing that kind of communication.
0: Hmm. It, It is interesting. So do you think that, you know, Given everyone's sort of experience trying to sort through education in this new sort of conflict moment, that education systems are going to fundamentally change in any way because of this pandemic?
1: I mean, it really is my hope that now that we have clarity that school disruptions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic are not short-lived, that schools and education systems can shift their thinking from stopgap measures to really reimagining what the future of learning looks like. We do see in conflict settings that disruption can create openings for reimagining education in ways that productively address uncertainty, focusing on these long-term purposes. But this really happens only with concentrated attention to disrupting the status quo and not on a continued focus on returning to normal. Because these ideas of what normal looks like um, have clearly changed. And so we need to adapt to that uncertainty with the kind of change and disruption um, to the future of learning that seems possible in these conditions. I think that COVID-19 may help us as a society also to think more deeply about the role of teachers and how we invest in the value of their work. It becomes clear that re-engaging in together activities may need to look different for different people and for various health reasons. I also think it might help us to see and meet the different learning needs of students and families, these approaches to differentiation that can be um, so hard to do and yet so critical to every child being able to learn and reach their potential. So I guess at core, I really hope that we can collectively think about how the future of learning needs to prepare students to create futures, even if those futures are unknowable and filled with uncertainty right now. And to do that, we really need to ensure that all young people are equipped to adapt to change and uncertainty, to really recognize the kinds of inequalities that exist around them and learn how to take actions to disrupt them and to really focus on these relationships of belonging that provide the secure foundation for everyone to learn, whether they are isolated physically or together in classrooms.
0: Well, Sarah Dryden-Peterson, Thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And please stay safe during the lockdown.
1: Thanks so much, Will. Great to talk with you. Keep well.
0: Sarah Dryden-Peterson is an associate professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and director of REACH. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed. Which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Oktas, and Injung Cho. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. Freshhead is an independently run podcast without advertisements. And is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of Fresh Ed by visiting FreshedPodcast.com/slash support. All US-based donations are tax deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.